I face the barren waste without the taste of water. Yes, we do like to talk about water on this program because in California, politics all seems to be involved with water. And by the way, this reminds me, I had a recent conversation with a former general manager here at KDVS. We're talking about the disgraceful story, which we will return to later in the program, of what's going on with UC and its budget and tuition raises and blah, blah, blah. I'd said previously, it seems to me we could take money out of our prison system and give it to the um, university used to be that we spent more money on education than we did on prisons. But the ex-GM said he didn't think there were funds available to do that. I think he was basing that on the political realities of the prison union. But it did occur to me, if we're going to talk about water, that Jerry Brown's effort to spend 25 or is it 50 or $60 billion to stick a big giant straw in the delta and suck more water out for the benefit of water interests of Southern California, well, you know, that might be a good place to divert some funds. $25 billion going to UC would be a lot better than um, more water theft. But let's hold off on the UC till the third um, segment today and talk a little bit about water for now. And boy, this is a story that seems to be one giant diversion. When I read these stories in the press about how we need to save more water and how our water-saving goals are meeting the state's uh, targets, I-, I think of the Gary Larson cartoon where the matador is out in the ring facing the bull And the Bulls' pals are waiting in the wings saying, Go for the cape, Larry. The cape. And you know, that's just about it. Go for the cape of water savings and water meters. Meanwhile, ignore the fact that 20% of California's water is going to the Imperial Valley for alfalfa. So I don't know. I just take this headline from the B, Matt Weiser's February 4th story, titled, Water Saving Meets State's Goals at Last, and just kind of... Let's just do that with it. Or an opinion piece from the March 8th B titled Water Storage Projects Need Critical Analysis. Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's build more uh, reservoirs instead of storing water in the ground. Let's just take this one in. All right, let's backtrack February 24th. The headline story, Water Meter Fast Track Sought. Oh, yeah, let's, let's fast track the meters. Go for the cape, Larry. Editorial piece, a smarter way to install water meters. Oh, yeah. Ryan Lillis piece from the February 25th B. Water meters to go in faster after the city council said, yes, let's do this faster. Small article. Of course, once the topic gets before the public, everybody jumps in. We got an editorial by David Codgill, also to the B. He's a former state legislator, CEO, and president of the California Building Industry Association. His op-ed piece was, Californians can save a lot of water by retrofitting wasteful older homes. How about not building new homes, which are sort of inherently wasteful? I mean, when you build them out in the desert and have to ship them water over hundreds of miles. There's a piece here also about a new uh, field pole. From Christopher Catalago, noting that uh, there's now a call for Californians to start rationing water. And, you know, I'm okay with that as long as they start with alfalfa growers. But, uh, you know, one piece where you can really see the handwriting on the wall is they're now asking all these farmers in the Delta to uh, verify the claims they have on water. Because I'm, sure I'm sure a lot of them have been grandfathered in. They're not going to be able to say that I've got a permit for water diversion. And that means that the water will stay in the rivers and then be pumped into the state and federal water projects. What do you bet? 
Of course, we should take a sideways trip to Texas, which always makes me feel good about being in California. We found a piece from the Texas Tribune talking about how Texas farmers are battling the Ogallala pumping limits. The Ogallala Aquifer happens to be a large reservoir of water left over from glaciers covering North America, which melted thousands of years ago and left a lot of water in the ground, which people down there are just pumping like there's no tomorrow. To quote from the piece, J.O. Doughty has been a farmer for 36 years. He's so worried about getting enough groundwater, he's considering a lawsuit to protect his right to it. Doughty and other farmers say new regulations which limit the amount of water they can withdraw from the Ogallala Aquifer and require that new wells have meters to measure use could have a crippling effect on their livelihoods. We view it as a real property rights violation, said Doughty. Yeah, sure. Let's just make this a brief foray into this topic and get out. I think I do want to close, though, with the piece we talked about before. Headlines, State Growth Threatens Water Conservation Goal. Yeah, save all the water you want now. Real estate interests, which drive this economy of California, are going to want to keep building like there's no tomorrow. Which is why I think we keep getting these headlines that are basically, you know, going for the cape. And sadly, when it comes to wheeler dealers, not just water-based wheeler dealers, but other types, we've observed to our sadness on this program that they seem to control the public debate. Radio Parallax's own Horses Ass of the Year for the year 2014, Nick Miller, who writes for the Sacramento News and Review, is writing a piece talking about how this King's Arena lawsuit against the city could cost the taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, if this arena project, which has been shoved down our throat without a public vote, is allowed to go forward, why, my goodness, if they wait long enough, the interest rates might go up and the city will be on the hook for even more. The Sacramento Bee picked up on this same story, piece by Dale Kaiser and Ryan Lillis, titled, Delay in Arena Bond Sales Could Add Millions to Cost. Of course, our favorite item is a quote in this piece from Patrick Solori, one of the lawyers for the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, saying, It's disingenuous to say the least for the city to say the pending lawsuit could cost the city money. Halting the fraudulent and other illegal giveaways of city assets outweighs the possibility of higher borrowing costs, said Solari in an email. Solari also blamed the city for delays, saying its attorneys dragged their feet and sought to block the litigation rather than let the case proceed to trial. Yeah, apparently the News and Review, presumably under Nick Miller's leadership, is calling this a NIMBY issue. And in fact, the News and Review is launching a NIMBY contest, apparently based on the premise that all of these lawsuits from public-spirited citizens trying to hold these money men accountable as they ramrod their projects through are, are just doing, doing us all a grave disservice. Now, we have to note with sadness that, you know, the real estate industry, which depends on water, certainly drives a lot of the press coverage, I guess you'd say, of what goes on in the greater capital area. Their entire real estate sections to our Sacramento Bee with headlines like, New Floor Plans Debut at The Grove. Whoa, there's some important information. Let's read up on those floor plans. Same issue had a piece titled, Six Models to be Unveiled at Stone Point Today. I don't know. We really appreciate articles like Cosmo Garvin's in the Sacramento News and Review talking about how an activist group is launching a series of meetings hoping to make Sacramento's government more open and honest. We should bring Cosmo on to talk about this. He notes in his Bites section that Los Angeles, San Diego, San Jose, San Francisco, and Oakland all have independent ethics commissions to keep an eye on the local politicians. 
Sacramento and Fresno are the only big California cities without any sort of ethics commissions. Well, we have to think that more ethics watchdogging has got to be a smart idea. Our guess is there's quite a bit of criminality going on among various movers and shakers, as there are everywhere in the world. And on that note, how about this guy, Deepak Wanakowate? He's apparently been ordered by the courts to repay his victims $108 million as part of his Ponzi scheme, the largest in Sacramento's history. Of course, we note that in his defense, Wanakowate has argued that his victims' losses in his Ponzi scheme came to less than the government claimed. In court papers filed last November, he said the losses were really more like 50 to 60 million, 50 to 80 million. Chris, I was, I was struck by an article about this by Dale Kastler in The Bee, noting that the 64-year-old Wanakawate was the owner of the Sacramento Capitals tennis team, which he moved to Las Vegas early last year because of the team's frustration with its stadium situation here in Sacramento. I guess you might say that, <laughs> lucky for uh, our capital, the taxpayers didn't wind up stuck on the hook for a new tennis stadium as well. I mean, had we done so, the great the area might have still been benefiting from the uh, business acumen of Deepak Wanakawate. And you know, we don't have time to go into this much today, but there's a controversy heating up over the public art that's going to go along with our new travesty of a stadium. Now, I have to admit, I don't know much about art, but I know what I don't like, and I certainly have my doubts about large pastel gummy bear-shaped goofball modern art projects at a cost of $8 million. Uh, Voluntary contributions, I understand. But uh, I don't know. Every time I go to the airport and I see that big red rabbit, I think to myself, well, that certainly shows that California's state capital is a more sophisticated place than, say, Pascagoula, Mississippi, or for that matter, Fayetteville, Arkansas. Because we will say one thing for our local law enforcement. Nobody to date has attempted to put a large sculpture of a cannabis plant next to our rabbit out at the airport. We assume we have the DEA to thank for this. Let's talk about some medical stuff for seven or eight minutes, shall we? All right, here's a piece from the Family Practice News, noting that a federal judge last January denied an injunction by Takeda Pharmaceuticals, which has basically had a five-year monopoly on the sale of colchicine, a gout medicine. We talked on this program a couple years back about how colchicine had apparently been available in essence, as a generic for, I don't know, something like a century, till some bright spark lawyer type at a big pharmaceutical company realized that, hey, if we submit a uh, a clinical trial of colchicine to the FDA and get it approved, we might be able to get a monopoly on marketing it under our license. And by God, they pulled it off. And uh, while all these machinations were going on, for the last five years or so, colchicine went from being about 10 cents per tablet to about $5 per tablet for no other reason than legal chicanery done by a pharmaceutical company. Aren't we supposed to have a government that protects us from this sort of stuff? Anyway, look, let's look at the bright side. This ruling means that colchicine may again become affordable for patients with gout. This balances off the somewhat disturbing item, which I now have an article in front of me to quote from, about acetaminophen. piece from The Lancet notes that acetaminophen, better known to you and I as Tylenol, taken regularly or as required, was apparently no better than placebo, according to a study, in improving the time of recovery in patients with acute low back pain. That's from um, research done in Australia. 
I have to admit, I've never found personally Tylenol when I took it to be terribly effective pain reliever. But it is curious when they get around to doing studies like this, they sort of find out that, well, there is an open question as to whether it is better than placebo. Of course, we cited a shocking stat, uh, I think it was last year, about uh, Advil, the number of people that had to be treated to get good, solid pain relief. And it turned out that it was basically one person in four. But uh, I'm really keen to tell a follow-up story here from the medical letter. This isn't exactly breaking news. It's from an issue of the medical letter that's a year and a half old, but somehow I missed it until recently, and I'm keen to report on it for you, my dear listener. We talked previously in this program about this terrible episode where law meets medicine, and in this case, the lawyers won and everybody else lost. But uh, let me quote from the medical letter and see if I can clarify the language on it. Noted the publication, the FDA has approved Diclegis, a fixed-dose, delayed-release combination of the H1 antihistamine doxylamine and vitamin B6. This is for treatment of nausea and vomiting of pregnancy in women who did not respond to conservative management. It is available only by prescription. Doxylamine and pyridoxin, that's vitamin B6, both currently available over-the-counter, were previously available by prescription in a fixed-dose combination called Bendectin. It was used for morning sickness, a very significant problem for many pregnant women. But notes the medical letter, Bendectin was voluntarily withdrawn in the U.S. in 1983 because of claims of teratogenicity, which in layman's terms means causes birth defects. Those claims have since been disproven. The combination had continued to be available in Canada as diclectin. Now, the story on this was an example of lawyers getting involved and um, juries, I suppose you'd say, uh, not understanding the concept of causation. Just because something happened after a prior event, it doesn't mean that the prior event caused it. Back in the 80s, lawyers tried to argue that bendectin, this combination of a vitamin, vitamin B6, and an antihistamine, doxylamine, was taken by quite a few ladies who later had children with birth defects. Therefore, the drug must have caused the birth defects. Therefore, the lawyers sued, big time. During the court presentations, the pharmaceutical companies did argue, pretty conclusively based on the data, that there was no correlation between bendectin and birth defects. In fact, the women who had taken bendectin had a lower rate of birth defects. Didn't matter. Some cases were won, and finally the manufacturer just voluntarily withdrew it. Now, looking back on my medical career, back in the day when I was taking care of pregnant ladies, which I no longer do now that I concentrate on men that don't get erections. And by the way, I don't enjoy treating only grumpy men. I do like to see women and children in the mix now and again. So I still try and work in urgent cares from time to time. But as I was saying, back in the day when I was trying to manage women who were pregnant, this issue of hyperemesis gravidarum having very, very severe nausea and vomiting in the morning can be a real problem. If you're throwing up, well, you're not getting the nutrition you need. You're not gaining the weight you need, and you may get all sorts of disturbances in your metabolism from the fact that you're, you know, messing up your electrolytes and other things. Now, by about the time this correspondent arrived on the scene, Bendectin was off the market. And damn it, it took it 30 years to get back. Now, the weird part about this was back in the day, we could tell ladies to go out and get some vitamin B6. You can buy that anywhere. But the really odd thing about it was that you could also buy the other component of bendectin, doxylamine, everywhere also. 
The drug Unisom was available everywhere as a sleeping agent because, as most of us find out to our discomfort, antihistamines are really good at making you sleepy. And this put medical residents, medical students, doctors in the awkward position of having to tell pregnant ladies, well, we think if you go buy Unisom and vitamin B6, you'll be fine. But we do have to warn you that it's been voluntarily withdrawn from the market. Anyway, the punchline of all this, everybody knew every inch of the way that Unisom doxylamine was not a health hazard. It was never taken off the market. It was over the counter, for crying out loud. And yet, if you combine it with vitamin B6, also over the counter, marketed as a prescription drug, well, that got taken off and people just had to suffer. Thankfully, it appears all that is now behind us. And I do need to make something in the way of a public service announcement, I think, as regards to what I spend most of my time doing in medicine, treating erectile dysfunction, which is to let you know, and perhaps your doctor know, my dear listener, that if you're going to be put on various antidepressants, I need to point out to you that almost all these medications, I'm talking about the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the good, safe antidepressants, which everybody in America seems to be on, have rates of sexual dysfunction that range between 25% and 80%. And what's worse about that is these are not necessarily thought to be temporary effects. And actually, I think it's fair to say that I have a blog where I talk about this and other issues that I think I can refer you to, dear listener. You can find that at sacramentomenshealth.com. And you know, I think we need to end this segment on more of an upper, no pun intended. So we'll talk about one final medical item where I may offer a slight apology to those delivering health care in Cuba. It's been my observation that conventional medical treatments are not as available in Cuba, along with medications, which seem to be in short supply, um, far more than people have the impression. But there's an upside to having perhaps a shortage of medications, which is that the Cubans try and head off disease at the pass, an approach which frankly would pay dividends anywhere and everywhere. Cuba does invest a lot of time and energy into education about health-related matters. It's said that pretty much everyone in Cuba can tell you about vaccinations and what they've had and the evidence behind them and what ages people need to be updated, etc. Of course, I'm basing what I'm talking about on what appears to be a rather glowing report in McLean's from someone named Rachel Brown. But one thing is inarguable, Cuba hasn't had a single case of measles in more than two decades while Canada had more than 2,000 and the U.S. many multiples of that. Of course, then we circle back to an individual rights thing, don't we? If you want to be an idiot in America and not vaccinate your kid based on flimsy evidence, well, people respect that right more than they should, perhaps, but they do. But anyway, let me just close by noting that, uh, you know, their success with vaccinations probably wouldn't be possible without Cuba's community-centered healthcare system, which does focus more on preventing illness than on curing it. Anyway, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more in our third segment. Stick around. Her name was Lola. She was a showgirl with yellow feathers in her hair and a dress cut down her ass. She would merengue and do the cha-cha. And while she tried to be a star, Tony always tended bar across the crowded floor. They worked from eight till four. They were young and they had each other.